Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through chapter 4, verse 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First John 3:11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of life into death because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. Why is it so hard for so many people today to ever say that anything is actually wrong? I suppose uh, everyone realizes that there is truth and there is error in certain areas of life. Uh, Mathematics, Uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4, it does not equal 5, correct? But when it comes to other issues, other areas of life, we are very hesitant to ever say anything is ever wrong. Um, When it comes to religion, it's all a matter of opinion. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, Even certain moral behaviors. We have similar phrases that we use. Uh, No one has any right to tell anyone else what to do. Well, is that a good way to think about love 
and truth, which is what this passage in front of us is asking us to consider. John, in the first half of the passage, we just had read out so well, is talking about love, and he's defining it by means of a contrast, a contrast between two very different people, between Cain and between Christ. And then he immediately uh, goes on in his thinking to consider truth, and then by a contrast as well, he uh, brings in this discussion about truth, connects it to love, and the contrast there in the matter of truth is between those who listen to the world and those who listen to the Word. John is saying something like this, love is only a sufficient guide to our behavior when it is true love, love and truth together. You do not truly love someone if it is not love in truth. And so, in a sense, John is disagreeing with the Beatles. All you need is not love. Or if it is just love, it's only a certain kind of love. That is true love. Now, surely this is accurate. We, we know this is the case in, in, in so many areas of life. We just don't like to admit it because we want to be tolerant. But there's so many things that we know, even in our culture today, that we should not tolerate. If someone is practicing self-harm... It is not loving to ignore that. It is loving to confront that. There are certain moral behaviors that we know are, uh, are wrong, and uh, we will not uh, tolerate as a society. Abuse, pedophilia, murder. <laughs> and yet when it comes to religion, no, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And John is saying, no, all you need is not love, all you need is true love. Well, first love, and there is this startling contrast. This is verses 11 uh, to 24, and as you look down with me, my friends, at your Bibles, you'll see that uh, he uh, starts off the passage by reminding us of one of the themes that he's been discussing over and over again in this wonderful book, First John. He says, uh, this is the message you heard uh, from the beginning. Well, from the beginning, we saw a couple of weeks ago, is a key phrase of, uh, of John's when he discusses um, and introduces what Jesus had said from the beginning. Jesus, God in human flesh, in the beginning was the Word, as John says in his gospel. And so Jesus is the ultimate, the revelation of ultimate truth, and yet he really was at a certain place, at a certain time, there, the beginning. John saw him. He saw the beginning. Jesus, God in human flesh. And so this is the message you heard from the beginning. John saw Jesus. He is now transferring that information to us. We should love one another. So love. He's introducing this theme, and this is the way that the early church countered the false teaching of the Gnostics, which said there was some hidden message of Jesus. Well, John said, no, I heard Jesus from the beginning. So there's no hidden secret message in the Gnostics. Here it is, right here, from the beginning. What is that message? It's as simple as this. Love one another. And the Gnostics, because they were super spiritual in their idea, they thought they were the elite, they turned up their noses at other Christians and left the fellowship, thinking they did not need to hang out with other Christians or need to gather together for worship. It was just them and their best friend and a cup of coffee, as it were. I don't know whether they drank coffee or not, but you know what I mean. And John says, no, from the beginning, this is a key principle. Love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, it's a key matter. From the beginning, Jesus taught this, that we gather because we love one another in the church. 
And you say, well, what does that really mean, what John tells us by this contrast, verses 12 to 15? And he uh, reminds us of this well-known story from the Old Testament. You probably heard it growing up as a child, perhaps. And if you did not, let me just remind you, it's about Cain. Cain, of course, uh, killed his brother, Abel. And he killed him, John, uh, John says, because uh, his own deeds were evil while his brothers were righteous. And so Cain gave in to a, a dangerous cocktail of guilt. I feel bad because I'm doing something wrong. And jealousy. This other person is being favored by God. Guilt and jealousy. Now, we're told that Cain could have resisted this temptation, but he did not. And so he killed his brother. What John is saying is there's a, there's a choice here. There's a choice in two very different modes of behavior. You either act like Cain, and so he goes to verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Or you act like Christ, verse 16. This is how we know what love is, Jesus Christ. He laid down his life. He, Jesus, gave his life for us. It's either Cain-like or it's Christ-like. Two very different contrasting modes of behavior. And so John, by introducing one of these great stories of the Old Testament, Cain and Abel, he's saying, well, look, you have a choice here whether you love one another, a choice right deep down in the heart whether you hate or whether you love. And that choice, let me describe it for you. It's either being like Cain or it's being like Christ. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives to one another. It is a powerful contrast. Love so often just seems like smush, doesn't it? Just, oh, I'll be loving. John is saying, no, it is a contrast. It's a choice. It's a startling contrast between actually being a killer of your brother or a sacrifice for your brother. Between Cain in Christ. You see, once again, John is removing gray area and middle ground. Uh, we want to say to ourselves, oh, when, when I don't really uh, like those around me who are Christians, when, when, I, when I'm harboring feelings of guilt, of, of guilt which lead to bitterness, which leads to anger, which leads to jealousy, when I harbor these feelings in my heart, I, I'm, I'm just uh, not, not uh, perhaps being perfect as a Christian, and maybe I should grow a little a bit. And John is saying, no, actually, there's a temptation that's Cain-like. If you're not giving your life for your brother, the, the, the opposite is, is Cain. He, he's removing the gray area and the middle ground. It's not just general smush or love one another or we, whatever that means. It doesn't matter. So he's saying, in effect, when you think about going to church or serving or giving or forgiving another Christian, it's not just about whether you set the alarm early enough on Sunday morning. It's not just about whether the church is old-fashioned or up-to-date. It's actually a choice between whether you really love your brothers or not, whether you're Cain-like, who killed his brother, or Christ-like, who gave his life for us. A fundamental difference. It's a choice. It's a contrast that John is drawing that takes place in the heart in that moment of decision. 
Now, perhaps you say to yourself, well, that just sounds very sentimental or theoretical. Well, John then in verse 17 is quick to point out it's not theoretical, isn't it? Can you see that? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, verse 16, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, it's practical. It's about something real. Doing something for uh, one of God's people who's in need. And those of us who love theological discourse need to pay particular attention to verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? Well, I, I talk about it, verse 18, but do you do it? Those of us who have the world's goods and love reading theological books need to pay particular attention to verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Why? Because it's a choice between being Cain-like or Christ-like. You're either giving your life for your brother or you're taking his life for your own agenda. It's one thing to say, oh, I love everyone. It's another thing to actually love your neighbor. It's one thing to say, oh, I love the church. It's one thing to actually love a church. John is, is challenging, isn't he, by this contrast for all of us. If it's not real, how do you know whether God's love abides in you? Verse 17, Cain-like or Christ-like? Now, I do want you to notice, uh, my friends, my brothers and sisters, that it's not Cain-like or Abel-like. Sometimes we think Christians must be very passive and just uh, give away their lives meaninglessly. No, it's Christ-like. It's for a great vision, a great purpose, the mission of God here locally in Wheaton and globally all around the world, as we heard earlier, we are giving our lives for a great purpose, for Christ's glory. That's the call of this passage, to love in that practical way, even financial way. If you have the world's goods, but you don't help your brother, Christ-like, not Cain-like. And see, there's a, there's a wonderful comfort that comes from that when we begin to follow. Look at verses 19 to 24. It does you spiritual good. Specifically, it reassures your heart. By this, we know that we are of the truth, and our hearts are reassured before Him. Reassures our heart before Him. And why does it do that? Well, it's not because uh, doing practical loving deeds saves us. John does not say that uh, doing practical loving deeds save us. No, we're saved by grace. John knows that. He's saying here something like this. Let me uh, put his uh, discussion from verse 19 to 24 in my own words. It goes something like this, I think John is saying. He's saying, look, I know that all of us here have moments when we feel and think in our hearts. We're not sure where we stand with God. And perhaps that affects our confidence, our spiritual confidence that, you know, are we really going to give everything for the mission of Christ? And, and then how do we reassure ourselves then that this is actually true, the Bible is true, that our relationship with God is real, 
How do we reassure ourselves? Well, this is how you do it. You love in a way that must be supernatural. Christ-like, not Cain-like. And if you see yourself loving in just a little bit like Christ, you're giving yourself for someone else who's another Christian. By this shall men know that you are my disciples. By this you will know that you are his disciple. We'll reassure you. We'll give you strength and courage. We'll do you spiritual good. You'll be able to come into church your head held high, knowing that you are Jesus's. Because we're following that command of Jesus's that we had from the beginning. Love one another. We must be His. So this matter of love and truth, John explains love first by drawing out a contrast between Christ and Cain. There's no middle ground here. It's one or the other. It starts in the attitude of our hearts. It leads to real practical deeds. And when we follow a Christ-like pattern, it assures us that we are actually in Christ that we're one of His disciples, and this gives us confidence and assurance and strength as a church and as individuals. It gives us gratitude. So love. Well, second, my friends, uh, John also talks about truth. He connects them, and this is why we're looking at this passage as one whole, because in John's thinking, it is a whole unit between love and truth. And this now uh, is from verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. You look down there, and John uh, now talks about uh, the work of the Spirit and how we know we are of His by the Spirit that uh, uh, God gave us. And so he discusses uh, that idea, and he wants to introduce some ways in which we can be sure about the truth. And so you can see in verse 1, he first of all is very concerned to make sure that Christians are not gullible, that they're not naive. Beloved, so he's talking about love, and he loves us, he loves them in this context of love. Beloved, but truth, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. That doesn't sound loving, you say. John says, oh, it is. That is loving. And he concludes, uh, verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He's saying, look, I, I'm talking about love and truth, and I want you to understand the truth now and how you discern the truth, and I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to be gullible. I want you to test. I want you to test. He's writing to Christians, not just Christian leaders. I want you to test the spirits. How do we do that? Well, we must, first of all, know that we have to do that. In other words, not just because something is new or has some excitement to it or talks a lot about the Spirit, you know, and the people seem very nice. Oh, he's a very nice man. It must be true. Uh, really? Oh, they mentioned Jesus. It must be, about, really, the real Jesus. Yeah? John says, no, uh, you've got to test the Spirit. You've got to be, uh, you know, willing not to be nice. It might be easier for a New Englander to swallow than a Midwesterner, perhaps. I'm not trying to make us not loving. 
but truly loving. That's what John's doing here, you see. And it's particularly hard for us, isn't it? Because we equate love with tolerance. And so we think we have to tolerate every spiritual emphasis. And John says, no, test the spirits. Well, how, how do you do that? He gives two ways of testing. The first is in verse 2. And it's a confession. So it's something that's actually confessed, believed, acknowledged, said to be true by the individual or the particular group. And that confession is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, you need some historical context to understand why this is particularly important at the time. There were a group of people, the Gnostics, who had a, a tendency to say that Jesus had not really come in the human flesh. He'd only seemed to be God in human flesh. And so John says, no, that's wrong. He was truly man and truly God. It was a particular test. Now, today, perhaps there aren't many groups out there that uh, deny that, that we're likely to think are not, uh, likely to think, uh, likely to be gullible about and give way to and have to be warned about. Then it was a sufficient test, but today it's a principle, isn't it? Let's take one idea that's fairly common today, and that's the idea that uh, uh, there are anonymous Christians out there who have never named the name of Jesus, but uh, because uh, of universalistic idea of one way or another, they're all going to be saved. Well, here's the test, isn't it? This is how you know every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So how is that idea that's fairly common today actually honoring to this principle? How does that exalt the God-man who humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow when his name is not even named? How is that honoring to the Lord Jesus? How? Test the spirits. That doesn't sound loving. It is loving. Because if you think that people don't actually have to name the Jesus, you won't send missionaries. And you won't go to your neighbor. And when eternity comes, you'll know that's not loving. Brothers and sisters, these things matter. It matters that we connect love to truth. It matters that we have a doctrine or correct teaching. Doctrine just means teaching. It matters that we have correct teaching. It matters that churches have correct and rigorous doctrinal statements. It matters that Christian institutions have correct and rigorous doctrinal statements. Why? Because the enemy of doctrine is the enemy of love. Now, I know that you can be too picky about doctrinal matters and make people cross every T and dot every I and minor and subsidiary and less significant doctrinal matters, and I'm not arguing for that, nor is John. And I know sometimes that you can sort of introduce a witch hunt trying to find out what everyone thinks about every minor matter and become rather judgmental and negative, and John isn't talking about that either. But a church without a vigorous doctrinal statement, one that does not exalt Jesus Christ that came in the flesh. Well, listen to what uh, John says, verse 3. 
Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. That is an emphasis that is anti-Christ against the Christ. We really need this book in the church today, don't we? Globally, we need to connect love with truth. And so John gives us his first test. But then uh, verses 4 to 6, he gives us another test. I think uh, this other test is a clear contrast. And let me walk you through why I think that. It's a contrast between listening to the world and listening to the Word. So John says in verse 6, we are from God, whoever knows God listens to us, who is not from God does not listen to us. And so John is writing uh, as he's explaining what he saw from the beginning, what he heard from Jesus from the beginning. He, like the other apostles, were witnesses to Jesus and were commissioned by Jesus to author the New Testament. Uh, John talks about that in the farewell discourse, John's Uh, Gospel, John chapter 14 through 17. They were specifically commissioned by Jesus to author the New Testament, to bear witness to what uh, they had heard, that the Spirit would lead them to all truth. And so they write. And so he says, we are from God. Now, I think he's using there the apostolic we. I think he's saying, we apostles are from God. Of course, we're from God, all us Christians, but I think he's using this in a particular way in verse 6. Whoever knows God listens to us. Well, I wouldn't like to say that. You know, sometimes I can preach a very boring sermon, and sometimes maybe people aren't listening, you know. But John can say that. Whoever knows God listens to us or listens to this. Now, that is a fundamentally important principle, therefore. See, there are many religious movements that have Bibles. I've been to churches where there is a Bible in every pew, but it's never opened. I've been to other churches where they read the Bible, and the person gets up and gives a homily that has nothing to do with what's just been read. And what John is saying, if we're not listening to the Word, we're listening to the world. Now, by the, word, he does not, by the world, he does not mean uh, non-Christian subculture. He means uh, John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The desires of the flesh, uh, of the eyes, the pride in possessions. He's talking about what I want. He's not talking about non-Christian subculture. He's talking about what I want. And this spirit of the world can be just as much present in religious circles. What I want. I want God to be like this. And so I'm going to impose that upon the text. So I'm going to ignore the text. I'm going to have lots of mystical experiences out here. I'm going to listen for a voice when we should be listening to the verse. That is everywhere, even in evangelical culture today. Got to come back to the word, my friends. He said, That's not very loving. John says, It is loving. You can just trace the history of churches. I've seen this as something of a church historian churches that gradually sidetrack the word. The next generation is liberal, and the next generation is gone. It is gone. 
And again, when you get to eternity, you'll realize how loving John is being. We have to stand on the Word. Otherwise, we're listening to the world. If we do, we have great confidence. We have so much to be thankful for. We have Christ. We assure our hearts. We have love and truth. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, you would underscore in this church a commitment to your word. I pray uh, for um, the, uh, the church more generally, that you would help us as your people to not be gullible or naive or think that there's no need to test the spirits, but actually to stand firm on the confession of Jesus Christ who came in flesh and listened to the word. Pray also, Father, that you'd help us to make that practical. That those of us with the world's goods, and many of us have many material goods, would practically look out for our brothers in need and practically do something about it. And I pray, Father, that uh, by your Spirit, as we do, give us great reassurance that we are of Christ, and Christ abides in us. And so give us great cause for thankfulness. In the name of Jesus, amen.